0: Danny, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. We will be in both 10 and 11, but we're going to read 11. I do echo Brian G. Quinto's uh, request that you uphold the Davis family in prayer. It has been a very difficult week, as you can imagine. Um, and please help. Find some way to help uh, food, cleanup, somewhere to help. Um, mm-hmm. These are, these are hard losses. Um, and yet, um, as many of our pastoral staff spent time with the Davises this week, you could see their theology bleed out of them in the most difficult times to get through. Their view of God and who He is and what He accomplishes holds them as they go through such trials. So our hearts are heavy with them. It's been a hard week. But God is good and he will see us through. I was just thinking as we were singing, so many songs have dependent worship in them. I'm afraid many Christians don't get to that. They don't sing that way because they're not dependent on the Lord. Many songs are dependent. We sing those and go, yeah, that's me. I, I, I gotta cling to him. That's when you know the Lord's got you and you're walking with him. So praise the Lord. He's good. He will get us through all this life and, and into eternity. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Probably wouldn't have chose this text for this week, but we're moving along. Um, what, a, what an interesting text this is. This is Babel. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Sinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for a church family that loves one another. We weep weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. In one moment, there's joy happening somewhere and within the family and in another moment, there's sorrow. And yet you are both there in the godly, joyful expressions that we have as believers and you're there in the most darkest times. And that's because, Father, you came and took our curse away. You sent your Son to do what we could not do. We could build all the towers we wanted and we could never get to you. And so you sent your Son and he came and cleaned us, forgave us, dressed us in his righteousness and he presents us before you. And so we have this beautiful relationship with the triune God. And we find, we find rest there. We find hope there, Lord. Father, we are reminded this week that we are but dust. We are very feeble. Uh, we cannot survive much. But you are a great God who has numbered our days and knows us. You have laid down a plan from eternity for us, Lord, and we trust you in that. And so we keep moving along, Lord. We keep following you by your grace day after day, hour after hour, and even moment after moment. And we thank you for the strength that you supply for us to do that. We thank you that you have taken away our desire to rebel. And, and Lord, as we look at this text tonight, we realize that this group of people wanted to reject you. They wanted nothing to do with you in reality. And so, Lord, we thank you that, that you have changed our position. We would be like these people if it was not for you. So give us insight into you. Give us insight into humanity and sin and forgiveness. Give us insight into the work of Christ tonight again. Give us insight into your great divine plan that you've laid down that is unchangeable. And may we worship you more when we leave this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, losing battle against God. I apologize for not having a full set of notes. It's been a little bit of a crazy week, but uh, I think I just put an outline out there if you'd like to grab one. This is an interesting study the study of Babel. Uh, I don't know about you. You've probably read this before, and sometimes you read it and you don't quite understand what the big deal is. Um, why this is such an offense against God. Uh, it's a narrative. Remember, it's being written by Moses. Uh, uh, They're pressing in on the borders of Canaan. They're about ready to go in. God is writing the word of God through him. He's revealing that word to the nations. This this is used to strengthen them as they go in and prepare to take this land. But this is an important piece uh, to the nation before they go in. Like all of God's word, they needed to hear this. Um, And they needed to understand what God was doing and why he was doing it. And so to understand the Tower of Babel is to understand uh, the plight of sinful man. It really is a look into the heart of man. Him left to himself without God directing him. You begin to understand how wicked and how devious he can be apart from God. The world is constantly fighting against God. Um, somebody wrote a book a long time ago called the long dark cold war against god i think it was uh, the long war against god maybe Um, very thick book i'm trying to remember who wrote it but the whole idea is man since the fall has been fighting god and to us those who know god we realize well, well that's not a very fair fight but yet man does Just think about Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9, right? He gets knocked off his steed. He's on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians or kill them or whatever he needs to do. And what does Christ say to him? Why do you kick against the goats? There's a constant push of man against the things of God. He pushes constantly, he kicks against it. He's always thinking he knows more than God knows. Or he may even think that God doesn't know or God doesn't care. And so he ends up opposing God in a battle that cannot be won. In fact, there's often very little thought of God's word in the world today. You know, we look at our nation and we realize that our nation fled religious persecution, came here, sought freedom for those things. Not all the... Signers were Christians, and everybody wasn't running around having church services all the time. We understand that. But there were Christian principles, and the Word of God was etched in people's minds at some level. It was taught at school. It was taught at home. Um, Most people had some kind of religious experience. And so the Word of God uh, pushed this country around a little bit as it got established. And it seems as the days go by that the Word of God has very little effect on someone. In fact, people work very hard right now to take and make a Bible and create a Bible, I wouldn't call it a Bible, like a book, that has been so shredded of anything that defends them. And so you get down to a few stories that can encourage you. Because the Word of God is meaningless to man. And they really think they know better. In Genesis 6, we begin to see that man had got to a point where the Bible said, you remember this, that everyone did what was right in their own heart, or did evil? Uh, did, did what was right in their own heart, and every intent of their thought was continually evil. Amazing statement. But when we get to this text, this is more of a corporate rebellion. There is one of the sons of Noah, his generations, his people are going to take a stand against God. They're going to take a stand against God. And to understand it, you, you can't just look at 11. If you just read 11, it seems kind of weird. You know, these people stop, they're building a city and a big tall tower and God doesn't like it and He changes their language. There's so much more to this. You've got to go back to chapter 10 to understand this. So look with me at chapter 10 and we'll, we'll number one is our first point here to understand the background of Babel. Now, you know chapter 10, most of us when we're reading through the Bible, we get to these chapters and we go, oh, that's one of those ones with all those Hebrew words I can't pronounce. We're going to skip through that. That's okay, I get that. But when you peruse through them in your reading, look for where it does these little parentheses. <laughs> and there's a great one in here. Look down at verse 6. He's already been through the sons of Jepheth, now he's turning to the sons of Ham. And he goes through these men that were birthed by Ham. And he comes to a man named Cush. And if you drop to verse 8, he says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one of the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, uh, in the land of Sinar. Now, then it just turns back to some names. Actually, verse 11, you'll see that Assyrian comes forth from them. Notice even the Ninevites come through this line here. These are all great uh, Great nations had opposed the nation of Israel. The Syrians actually took the northern tribes. Ninevite, of course, Jonah was sent there to Nineveh. If you look down just a little farther, um, you pick up several things like the Philistines. Um, that would come out of verse 14. Further down, verse 16, the Jebusites, Amorites, the Gishites, Um, The Hittites, you even have as you follow this down, you come down and you realize Sodom and Gomorrah was a product of this family (laughs) that's not good heritage, (laughs) that's not the bloodlines we want to be putting out here so you begin to realize, hey this Nimrod, this great hunter, (laughs) that sounds really cool to those of us that grow up hunting, but he's not a good guy now as Moses records God's word for the nation, he's once again going to focus in on these descendants of Ham, the father of Canaan. Notice he does not give a great amount of description to Japheth or even to Shem, which would be the Shemites, which would later be the, uh, become the Israelites in chapter 12. He focuses in on those who will oppose the nation as he goes in to the land of Canaan. And these are the people that God is about to drive out of the promised land, and Moses is recording what God has said about them. So in the middle of the table of nations, this, this great list of names, God interrupts the genealogy and he gives the details of these people who came in. Now, the text focuses in on one man, his name's Nimrod, um, and Nimrod is said to be the founder, really, of the first world kingdom, world empire. Notice that in verse 10. He says, this is the beginning of his kingdom. Well, that's not God's kingdom. That's man's kingdom here. And so he's, he, he's the first ruler of that. And notice in verse 10 that, that it's, it's a building. It's, it's, it's coming together. There's several, several cities so I think sometimes we look at this and we go, oh, it's everybody's in one town. No, they're on a plane, and there's many cities that they're developing. And you know, realize the Shemites are not too far right away, and, the, and, the, and Jepheth, their descendants are not too far away. But this group is settling down, and they are saying, we are not moving. This is where we're going to make our stand. And so the key to understanding this is that it is not just speaking about the kingdom of God, but it's speaking about the kingdom of man. And this was obvious of great importance to God and to Moses as they led the nations. They want them to understand this little section in chapter 10 that it's going to play out in the first nine verses of chapter 11. So notice in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 10, it says, Now Cush became the father Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore he said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, the son of Cush is said to be a mighty one in the Hebrew. He's a mighty one, is the idea there. A mighty hunter before the Lord. And and you think, well, is this good or is this bad? When you read this just outside of context, understanding what's going on here, you go, well, it's cool, he's a good hunter. (laughs) I, I remember reading this as a young man and thinking, Wow, I want to be like that guy. And then later learn to study the text and realize I don't want to be like that guy at all. So this is the beginning, and we have to understand this, Babel is the beginning of Babylon. I don't know if you've made that connection. Babel, we get that phrase because there God confused their language and they babbled. But this becomes the great empire that constantly opposes God. And this is the start of it. And Nimrod is behind this. And the empire of Babylon was under the rule of Nimrod. And he was an offense to God. He is he not something pleasing to God in any way. And he's an offense to man. He's an offense to God because Babylon sought to do away with God. We'll see that. Their goal is to remove God and make their own God. In fact, they themselves be worshiped. It's an offense to man because Babylon sought to rule over people with, with tyranny. And In fact, Luther said this about Nimrod. He said, he's called a hunter here, and you first think he's a hunter of wild animals, but that's not what he's saying. And Luther goes on to say, he's a hunter because he's pursuing and dominating mankind. He's, a hunt- he's hunting men. He's a warrior. And he's taking anybody and fighting them or killing them ruthlessly to build his kingdom here on this Sinar plain. He's, he's not one you would want to mess with. So Nimrod, the son of Cush, was a mighty tyrant who was arrogant and defiant. And he did all these things right before the face of the Lord. So sometimes these phrases and these narratives, we think, well, that's nice, he's before the Lord. No, meaning he is in God's face saying, I oppose you on this. I know what you've said for us to do. I know what you told Grandpa Ham to do. We're not doing it. And I'm going to rule. This is, the, this is what's coming out of this guy. Now, he did all these things before the face of the Lord. But in great defiance. And Nimrod's home base was Babel. And there he was building this kingdom. So it was a, it was a city of man. It was built by man. And it was for man's glory. Remember he says that we can make a name for ourselves. We'll see that in chapter 11. This arrogance will be passed down to the sons of the Canaanites. Right? Uh, boy, how many times I've been asked, or you get in a discussion, particularly with a student, um, university student or something, that, that doesn't like Christianity, and they'll attack you on the nation of Israel and how they wiped out nations. And so why did they do that to all those good people? <laughs> One of the things that Moses is doing so clearly in this text is showing that the, those that came from the line of Ham were not good people, and there was no good people on earth but particularly that these were wicked, wicked nations. And Babel is the start of the line of Ham going to fulfill the promised covenant that God said that you will be a slave to the nations of your brothers. And that was going to come with great war and battles and great death. And so when we look at this, you begin to see this arrogance is being passed down from Ham. It's going to go, it may, not, it may not fulfill right in those first generations, but eventually it's going to come against the nation of Israel. And that's why God is showing this. Now, we know, and let me just put a little parentheses here, we know that even within these wicked, wicked nations that the nation of Israel comes in and wipes out, God still saves people, am Right? Very first, very first town was what? What city was the first town? Walls fell down, went around it. Thank you. Um, there was a prostitute in there that protected the spies. God saves her and her family out of that. In fact, she ends up in the lineage of Christ. Ninevites, also a nation that is in the, uh, the lineage of Ham, that was cursed because he looked on his father's natives. We know the story of Jonah. Jonah has sent to that nation, a three-day walk across that city, and yet God brings them to repentance. And, and doubtlessly, many of those people came to true repentance, though later on they rebelled again. So when I say that, I want you to understand that God is always saving people out of these wicked nations. Now, it isn't hard to trace Babylon throughout history to see its rejection of God. Um, I just picked out one entrance and uh, how the pride comes out of it, how Nimrod's actions come out. We finally catch up with it, and, and uh, when it's ruling, and it's got the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, and Nebuchadnezzar is ruling. And you remember what he does, he, he builds a statue and a gold head, and he plays these songs, and when you hear the songs, you got to bow down, Right? And there we pick up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, and all of that. Very similar, a tall statue that you would look up to, that you would worship. Very similar to what we see in chapter 11. It isn't long after that, that Nebuchadnezzar's walking on his wall that protected his kingdom. It was said that they could drive eight chariots side by side on that wall. That's how thick that thing was. He's walking around on there, and he begins to boast of all that he has done. And you remember what God did said, uh, "Yeah, you're going to be eating grass tomorrow this time." And he was. And so we see the effects of this babel, this Nimrod uh, arrogancy all the way down through the scriptures. And the New Testament refers to the wicked kingdom control, even in end times we see the harlot of Babylon. We see these terminologies. Peter refers to Babylon, speaking of Rome most likely. Um, And so it's a term that's stuck with rebellion against God. So what I'm trying to create and help you understand is when we look at chapter 10 and 11, this is not just a group of people that decide to camp out and build a tall building. This is defiance against the almighty God. Their descendants just, what, couple generations walked off a boat that God spared them from eternal destruction. This is not long ago from what God had done, and the stories were still fresh in their mind. Now, in Genesis 9.25, as the boat had come to rest on Ararat, and Noah was there and he was offering clean animal sacrifices, God promised that Canaan would be cursed after Ham looked on the nakedness of his father. And he said in that curse, now think about this, Canaan, which would be Ham's descendants, would be the lowest of slaves to his own brothers. Now, believe you me, Nimrod knew this. And so it seems possible that Nimrod is determined to reverse God's curse on Grandpa Ham and is extremely violent in rebellion to this command. He may have said something like this as I studied this text, I wrote this down. Not only will I not be a slave to anyone, but I will rule over everyone in the face of God. That's kind of the attitude that comes out of the Hebrew text. I am not going to be slaves to my brother. I'm a great hunter. I'm a great warrior, and I'll kill you, and I'm going to do what I want to do. This is what we're dealing with. However, this is the normal reaction of fallen man, isn't he? When he comes face to face with God, when he sees the law of God, right? When he realizes who God is, man without the Holy Spirit regenerating his soul, he will shake his fist at God. And he will fight against them. He'll say, I can beat it. I can take care of my own problems. I can be my own man. I can be my own person. Man builds armies, cities, sports teams, masses, amounts of entertainment to combat and drown the sinfulness of his own heart in order not to have to deal with God. He may not build a giant tower like Nimrod did, and we'll see where that comes in, because that's going to be pagan worship. Um, but he still, man to this day, will not bow their knee to God. He seeks to make a name for himself. We'll see in chapter 11, said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us bring glory to our own self. And he does this in defiance to God's divine decrees. What is the greatest command Jesus told those who were trying to trap him? Love your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself is a second. And, and think about that. That's completely opposite of what man is about. No, I love me with all my heart, my mind, and my soul, and I'm going to get from my neighbor whatever I want. See, that's the attitude of Nimrod. That's the attitude that is in fallen man. God has cursed man because of his sin and he cannot overcome that curse. But he tries. And he tries by, and we're going to see this in Levin, he tries by building ivory towers of religion in order to gain uh, some kind of approval from God or create his own approval in himself. And the religious the world today has done those exact same things and there is, but there is only one way to reverse the curse and that is God cursing his son. Think about that. The only way to reverse the curse is that God must curse his own son. So Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. <laughs> so this is the way God, through Jesus Christ alone, solved our curse problem. And so God must curse his son, he must pour his wrath out on him, and then he must clothe us in his righteousness, and then we become his slaves, right? That's what Romans 6 says, you're no longer a slave of of sin, you're a slave of righteousness now. To Nimrod, he wanted nothing to do with this. Number two, second thought. Nimrod's Babylon and the revelation of mankind's heart. Turn to chapter 11 now. We'll jump over there because these, both these texts run together to understand them. The first tells us that Nimrod's exploits and uh, godless generations to come. It tells us all about that. We begin to understand this is not a good guy. He's not after the things of God. In fact, he's, impo- he's opposing them. But the second here, second passage, um, does not even mention Nimrod, but focuses in on the self-based religious activities of the central city of Babylon. And according, uh, excuse me, on the account of the the building up of Babylon, or Babel here, it begins with verse 1 by reminding us that everybody spoke the same language. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because they're all from Noah. So, So there isn't a diversity of... Uh, language or uh, probably even a, a great diversity of culture, even uh, too much that would grow as time goes on, uh, but everybody 's speaking the same language. This certainly makes sense because of all humanity has come from noah, and the world 's population now is moved east from Ararat, they probably came off Ararat, they came right down the slope, got out of the colder weather that would have been up there, and settled now in the Nimrod city of Babel, in this area we would refer to as the Sinar plain. Now, they're all gathered together, they're speaking one language, and there's a problem because in Genesis 9, verse 1, as they got off the ark, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and fill the ark. Now, that's where you begin to start to see the rebellion, don't you? Because they say, look, let's stay here. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower. Let's do all these things lest, lest we be scattered. Direct opposition to what God has said. So we, we see them doing that. That's reiterated command from creation. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, at the time of creation, Adam is instructed to fill the earth and to have dominion over it. And so there's direct rebellion. So verse 1, they're speaking the same language, the same words. Verse 2, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Sinar and they settled there. Now it seems as humanity is on the move east here, there is a partial fulfillment of the command. I don't I don't think the Bible's saying that everybody's in this one city. In fact, it names several cities that probably are under the command of Nimrod for his family unit, but everybody's pretty close in that area. Now, yet as we read, we find that the goal of this particular settlement was not to fulfill the command of God, was to defy it. And and that's that's the goal of Babel. That's the goal of the Babylonians here, was to resist any further scattering. We don't want to do this. We want to create a city where we can achieve unity um, and integrate the people and, and be centralized. Now, those of us that grew up in the country, we kind of look at this and go, yeah, well, that's where all the problems are. <laughs> you stuff everybody together on, a, on an island, Long Island, wherever, <laughs> and there's problems. Let them spread out a little bit. I think God knew what he was talking about. Um, and... and and you allow people to live a little bit, but we stack them on top of each other, and that was what it was doing here because the rulers were going here. We can control them. Do you know most of the world's population lives in an apartment? The greater percentage of the world's population lives in apartments. We don't know that unless you travel, <laughs> you get outside here, you begin to realize, wow, everybody lives in an apartment. And there, they can be controlled, and that's exactly what Nimrod was wanting to do. He wanted to keep his control over these people and direct their worship to him and to themselves. Now, look at verse 3. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone, and they used tar for mortar. Now, notice the first invitation is to participate in this great project. Come, come now. It's an important part. Come, this is what the story is telling us. Let us stop here. Let's make bricks. Let's gather uh, tar for mortar. And, and by the way, isn't that interesting that there's already oil in the Middle East? <laughs> I didn't catch that till today. I was looking at that and I thought, wow, the oil was already there. Um, and so they take tar to make these, uh, to hold these bricks together and they begin uh, to build. Verse 4, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. In a tower whose top, will, whose top will reach into the heavens, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now notice here the second come is an invitation to abandon this nomadic life that they were starting to live as they were where they were supposed to go spread out, and give up this tent living and build real homes. That's where the brick and mortar comes in that he's talking about. They had been living probably on the move quite a bit here. And then there is this, there's this invitation to come and make a city with a center point of worship. Now, the main point is that they were going to make a name for themselves. Look at, look at the middle of four. And let us make for ourselves a name. Uh, um, Be recognized, the word name often is is tied to glory, uh, to a persona of who we are. And so he says, let us us make a name for ourselves. In other words, we will not be anyone's slave, because we want to be powerful, we want to worship, so we, we want to control our own destiny, and the best way to do that is to stay together, so it's a, it's a rejection of God's commands. We want to stay together because we want our own glory. And when we attempt to live, and you think about this in some practical end of it, when we attempt to live independent of what God tells us to do, there's always problems. We experience death and loss and broken relationships and every time we live... Um, uh, Not in accordance with the word of God. Even sometimes in the most simplest things when we choose to say, God, I know what you say, but I'm not going to do it. To him it is sin. And sin ultimately, ultimately brings death and destruction. And so you can see these people putting their heels into the ground. Now, is there, question here, is is there, is it wrong to try to do something that is honorable, Um, do something that would gain reward. I don't think that's, you know, the point here. I think you should do the best you can, and we love to recognize people who have received honor and reward, particularly military and law enforcement and those type of things that protect us. I think those things are good, but God has taught us as believers that we are to humble ourselves under his mighty hand that in due time, in proper time, God's time, he will exalt you. And so this is, this is what happens to man. This is what happens to Nimrod. No, I'm going to do this now. We're not going to go down that road. We're not going to separate because I'm not going to be anybody's slave. And so I'm not going to obey what God has to say. So we're going to stick our heels in here. That happens to us often. And we feel the hand of God upon us instead of submitting to his plan, submitting to what he has for our lives. We fight against it, and we find ourselves in opposition of a great and almighty God. Now, as children of him, he he does not crush us and send us to eternal hell, but he does discipline us at times when you and I do not accept what God has for us one of the things about the people of Babel led by Nimrod, they did not want anything to do with what God had. Now, three, man was created to worship. Look at verse, middle of verse four, let us, make for self, uh, let us make for ourselves, actually back up a tower whose top will reach into the heavens and let us make for ourselves a name. Now, the one element that has been missing in our study of a Babel in chapter 10 is religion. We're going to make a city here. I'm a great hunter. I'm going to take you out if you don't follow me. I'm going to gather people together. But there is no religious point to hold people together. Religion holds people together. And I'm just talking about any religion. You will watch the Muslim world work throughout the Middle East, and people will lay their lives down and die for pieces of dirt that you just can't believe because they are committed to a Muslim faith. We saw through the dark ages of this world as even the Roman Catholics just marched across and wiped people out. And people would say, well, it's, it's okay because God's with us. Religion brings people together, unifies people together. And so guess what they do in the center of all that they have? Let's stay here. Let's build homes for ourselves. Well, that sounds good. And we're going to put a religious point right in the middle. And that's going to become what holds us together. And I think that's what Nimrod's doing here. I think he's very smart. And that's where this famed tower of Babel comes in. Notice it says, reaches to the heavens. And we should denote that the height of it um, is not so much the idea of the worship. We'll get into this a little bit, what they were trying to do. If they wanted to build a super high building, they kinda, there's not... Not too far away they could find a mountain and build it up on top of a mountain to be even higher. So I don't think that's the point here. But doubtlessly Nimrod realized that the people needed this religious motivation strong enough to, to overcome their knowledge of what God wanted to command to, uh, the command to fill the earth. And so the tower now becomes a dedicated to the worship of the heavens and angelic beings. This is where this goes. And then I'll I'll, let me prove this to you. Man either worships God or he worships what God created. And if they won't worship the true and living God, they they would obey his command and and won't obey his command to fill the earth. They're going to find something else. We're going to find what he created. So that's exactly what Nimrod and Babylon are trying to do. And years later, years later, all the way in Rome, Rome immortalized Nimrod as a god. You can go back and look in the history of that, and they called him Murdoch. But Babel marks the spot where mankind corporately rejects God and creates a religious-based worship of creation. Now, reaches into the heavens, really what the main worship was around astrology. And, And there's ways to prove this. You can turn and look into any book on astrology today and go back and find the history of astrology and it take you back to the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians. Astrology comes back to this tower. This is what they began to worship. In fact, this is what they did. They were the first to develop the zodiac of dividing the skies into section and giving meaning to each one of these. People still doing this today. They get their paper and look and try to get their sign and find out what's going to happen to them today, right? This is where all came. This is rejection of the providence of God, rejection that there's a God that controls all things. You're, You're now going to worship the signs and stars and sections that your birth date falls under. This is what's going on here in Babel. And a person's destiny is now determined by whatever section or sign he's born under. So this Babylonian worship of God's terrestrial creation has been passed down since, since Babel was built. They saw signs and they would section them off and they would worship different signs that were in that section of stars. Now that we look up and there go, that's a big dipper. To them, that puts you underneath something, and from there, divination would come forward. It, it, it's so bad. This this, you know, one of the things about Babel is we see God. Separates them by separating their language, right? And so they all go. It doesn't mean Babel went away. They quit building. It's not like the flood where he just wipes everything out. He confuses their language. Some stayed here. Many, all the other languages left. It's important to understand that. When the Jews left Egypt, um, Moses begins to record the law, right? Even now, as he's reading this to the nation. It is fascinating how many times in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that he forbids the nation to get involved with any of this type of divination. He's so serious about it because it's so satanic and so built around the host of the stars and the host of fallen angels that the law of God forbids the nation of Israel to have anything to do with it. And yet... It seems to follow them, but it stays with these sons of Ham. And uh, studying the Hittites and uh, Jezusites, and you you go down through those nations were absolutely, fully corrupt, hanging on to satanic teaching. The things that the nation found as they went in there, they were warned. And you say, well, why did they tell them to destroy everything? Because it was so full of godless pagan worship, God did not want them near those things so he gave the command over and over to destroy everything. Now, the interesting thing about the biblical rejection of astrology is that it's connected with demonic or satanic activity. Satan is referred to what? The prince of the power of the air, right? So it didn't take long for the demonic involvement in the worship of the constellation. And it's, it isn't hard to understand that Satan was very much involved in Nimrod's and Babylon, Babylon's rejection of God. So the tower was actually a satanic attempt to direct the worship of human race to itself. And, and then to fallen angels and those that rebelled against God out of heaven. And however, to the people of Babylon, this project originally probably was presented to them as an act of spiritual worship. Isn't that how false... False religion works. They soothe you in. Oh, this is, oh, you'll be better off if you're the spiritual person. And yet false religions come right alongside the true religion of, of a true living God, the uh, salvation and a gospel message, and just peel people off just like that all the time. And most likely this was given in that way. A tower might have been sold as a symbol of might and majesty of God. And at the base of it, it probably had altars and sacrifice and worship God there. But it did not take long that ultimately their goal was to understand what God was doing, try to find something from the heavens, find understanding of their direction in life. And so they developed the signs of the Zodiac and forth. And that may have been embrazened all over this thing. Who knows? Some of the the historical understanding of these guys that study this much deeper than I say, it was all over their life. And so Satan is this great corrupter, and all he needs is one to say, oh, God said this, we're not going to do this, and he's there. Do you see that? And mean, that's what Babel's about. God said, do this, and, and they go, nope, we're not doing that. Bam, Satan's there. It's such an important point for us, isn't it? Say, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to behave here in this life? How should we walk with you? What brings you glory? What's good for us? What's good for your glory? We want to do that. And this is why we train our children and we try to train ourselves not to be legalists, but to honor God from our hearts. Because when we don't, there's nothing there but destruction. There's nothing there but someone trying to lead you straight to something else. And this is exactly what happens. Fourth thought, God will always oppose sin. Verse 5, this is fascinating. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. It's time for God to crush this first corporate rebellion. This time, he's not going to do it with a flood. (laughs) It's going to do it in an entirely different manner. Instead of destruction, God performs a miracle that changes the the voice cords and the hearing... I mean, I'm, I, I'm stretching, trying to understand how he does this, but think about what he did in a moment's notice to change the voice and tones and words of, of the entire world. You think the flood was amazing, which it was. He comes down and says, I'm going to confuse their language in such a way that they could not and they cannot work together and inevitably, they will have to scatter out to find similar language groups and there fulfill what I commanded them to do originally. Verses 3 and 4, the people were instructed to come, right? However, in verse 5, the one who only matters, the true one, he actually comes. Notice what it says in verse 5. The Lord comes. <laughs> They're saying, oh, come, and we're going to build homes, and we're going to build this tower, and you know, we're going to make bricks and all that stuff. Hey, The real guy showed up. And it's fascinating when you look at uh, this this beautiful God who bends down. And so this true God of heaven and earth comes down, and with one sweep, he destroys all their efforts. Verse 6 and 7, the Lord says, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. He sees the power and strength when they gather together in witness what they, what they have the ability to do. And, and you go, well, what does he mean here? It doesn't take long. I mean, look at our own country. I shared a little bit of this last Sunday. Men could mobilize men and they could show up on a field a few hours from here and 10,000 people be dead after it. It doesn't, they can mobilize and do terrible things. World War I, we probably know the least about. And and yet, when you study the history of it, it's the most deadly, gross killing of mankind. And what God is saying, look, if we leave them in this situation, this is the graciousness of God, let's not do this. We're going to come down, we're going to confuse their language, and they're going to go do what they need to be doing, what I've commanded them to do for their own good. It's common grace falling on mankind. Because if we leave them here, this is going to bring nothing but my full wrath onto them. It's fascinating thoughts to think through this. So, here God bends down. <laughs> and it's a reminder. I, it's a reminder of this, that God can frustrate the plans of the wicked. Isn't it true? There's a lot of things going on in our country You that go, that's pretty scary. There are lots of people that would do anything they can to stop what we're doing here tonight, already in this country. They blame Christians for the, for the problems of the world. I mean, there's just pure hatred in our country for you and I, who have nothing but vote and try to help and pay our taxes, and, and yeah, we will be the bad guys. I love this text because it reminds you that God can come down in supernatural ways that you cannot see like a flood, and frustrate the plans of man. And how many times has he done that? Where someone set out to go do something evil and God frustrated that plan. And this is what he does. So God has determined the way of man. And the wording of these verses give this anthropomorphic anthropomorphic way of looking at God he stoops the idea is he bends down from the heavens to take a closer look in a sense it's showing us his person and who he is that he's on top of this and, and you think about these guys here, they're building this tower, they think they've really accomplished something. We've got this big, giant, tall tower, and we're reading the stars, and we're worshiping these sections and these signs and all this, and they think they've really created something, and God's kind of bending down to look at them. I told Gina today, I said, um, when, you ride, when you drive by for the first time, those of us from the California coast, drive by Daytona Speedway, it's quite a little piece of ground there. The stands are a mile long. They, they bend to seven and a half inches from the curvature of the earth. They had to put that into the architectural design. That's how big it is. Well, fly over it at 40,000 feet and go look at it. It looks like a pimple. This is how God, and I think what this verse is doing is showing us the power and the authority and the immensity of our God who looks down on the plans of man and and he can pop a pimple with their masses. I don't have time, but we could go to the end of Revelations, and you can see Satan released, um, and he gathers um, from the four corners of the world, and he gathers the, the armies against God. And the Bible basically, in so many words, teaches he breathes on them and destroys them. And he didn't do that here. He doesn't wipe anybody out here. He confuses them and sends them on their way to fulfill what God called them to do. And I think he does that with us at times. There's times, brothers and sisters, where our plans are frustrated, and it might be, let's think through this this as a personal question, it might be that we're not walking with him as he commanded us to. It might be that he's teaching us to be patient and he's got a plan he's going to lay out. There's a lot of things, but there are times he will frustrate us because we won't obey him. It's his way of demonstrating his love for us. I'm going to discipline you. That's not the right way to do that. He is a grand designer. He has a plan. He doesn't change it because men go, oh, we won't do that. It's not our God. Now, last thought. I'm out of time because I really want to tie this to Christ so how do you tie this to Christ I talked about he, he only he can reverse the curse we talked about that what's one amazing thing that we're going to see someday take your Bibles turn to Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 and I want to tie this to Babel somebody with a strong voice soon as you get there read it as loud as you can in this room God's plans are always filled with grace. Revelation's chapter 5 verse 9. Who's got it? Read it loud. Isn't that fascinating? Every tribe, every tongue that he created, that he separated at a sinful Time on this planet in that sinful place where man had stuck their heels in against God where he created he now has promised and we're going to see this next time in chapter 12 that Abraham from the seed of Abraham is going to become a blessing to every nation and so you look at this and you go, this is absolutely horrendous what these people did for God, who had just wiped out the entire world and was building a new humanity. They stick their heels and they become worshipers of his creation rather than him. And in the end, he, he diversifies the whole world so he can save people from every tribe, time nation. Isn't that amazing? And so right here in our text, we begin to see the formation of the first time of missions. Those nations have to be one for Christ. In the next chapter, chapter 12, Abraham is taken out of a godless pagan nation and family, chosen out of that. No history. Joshua says Abraham's father, Terah, served the gods on the other side of the river. Pulls him out of him, makes him a covenant promise, and says, from your seed, there'll be a blessing to all men, to all nations. And he made those all nations the chapter before out of their rebellion. Just ponder that for a moment. I sat in my chair today and said, no, you can't just write this stuff. He sees all things. He knows all things. He's not reacting to man. He is in control of all things. In the end, these wicked people who reject God, he puts them out and sends them to scatter the earth and we get all these tribes and languages and names, still things we're writing, we're still translating Bibles in languages even to this day. We have not fully got the Bible in every language and we're still working on that today and God is going to save people from every tribe and tongue. It's amazing. And so even in this disaster uh, um, that we look at, uh, God's in it and he's going to save people. Look forward to meeting Rahab. Look forward to meeting some Ninevites. Look forward to meeting some of those that would have been under the hand of slavery of of Ham who God pulled out just like us. Just like us. Fun things to think about in here. These are are amazing truths. What What a neat study. Father, thank you for reminding us of your power and authority. Who would have Imagine, Lord, that you could take such a devastating situation where people had rejected, had rebelled against you, have stuck their heels in the ground and said, we will not fill the earth, we will not obey you. In the end, you change their language, you make tribes and tongues, and you scatter them around the world in order to save people from every one of those tribes and tongues. What an amazing thing, Lord. Only you could do that. Lord, help us obey you not because we have to, but because we get to. You've saved us from our sins. The wages of death has been poured out on Jesus. He took our curse. He hung on the tree because he was cursed for that. So help us, Lord, to be uh, men and women, young people, millennials, high schoolers and children and Whatever our age group is, Lord, retired, help us be people who obey Jesus and walk according to the word because it's good for us and it brings you great glory. So help us, Lord. This is a hard life we live in, Lord. We're but dust. We're easily persuaded at times when we don't have our mind on you set on the things above, Lord, and we can be drug away. So, Lord, keep us close to you. Let us not dig our heels in on something that we want done our way, and may we relinquish uh, those reins and give them to you, and live a life of joy of following you, even in difficult times, Lord. Father, we pray for our church this week as we go through a, a memorial service with the Davises. Give us strength. May we be uh, those who have a servant's heart. May we uh, uphold our brother and sisters they mourn the loss of their son, Lord.